Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and today I'm not here with Bill. I'm with friend and professional entomologist, Dr. Wayne Gall. Good morning, Wayne. Morning, Steve. What we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. Every episode, we pick a natural history topic, research that topic, take you out to a natural area, and share with you everything that we learned. But this time, I haven't really done much preparation, but that's fine because we have Wayne who has a whole career of knowledge and experience on this topic. But Wayne, do you wanna introduce what we're actually gonna be talking about? Sure. Today we're at the Deer Lick uh, Nature Preserve uh, southeast of Gowanda, New York. And it's a gorgeous midwinter day. It's uh, right about freezing, sunshine. And today we're searching for winter active insects. And a lot of people aren't aware that there is such a thing as winter active insects, but I've actually been here many times in the past looking for winter active insects, and I've already shared with Steve some notes from an excursion here in January of 1996, when I collected, believe it or not, 18 different species of insects and spiders on the snow when it was uh, about a quarter to one meter depth of snow. Again, right around freezing to a little above freezing temperature. Mm -hmm. And um, this uh, was a break in the weather after a prolonged period of extreme cold. So again, it's almost hard to believe, but there are a number of insects that come up on the snow surface on favorable days in the winter, even after extreme periods of prolonged freezing and sub-freezing temperatures. I think the one that I'm most familiar with are the springtails in uh, the order Columbula, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Known as snow fleas. Snow fleas, right. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. In this case, I mean, there are a lot of different species of Columbulans, but there's uh, uh, several species that are called snow fleas because they do come out on the snow surface, often peppering the snow with little black hopping, uh, hopping specks, sometimes in the thousands, ten thousands, I mean, enormous numbers. So uh, we'll see what we find today. Yeah, cool. So I think Wayne found our first, our first finding of the day. Yes, this is one of the small winter stoneflies in the genus Alicapnia, and um, superficially, when you see these things on the surface of the snow, you'd say it looks like it has a head at each end <laughs> because it looks like it has a pair of antennae at each end. But actually, of course, it has just one pair of antennae on the, on the head, on the anterior portion of the body. But it does have a pair of caudal appendages, tails, if you will, on the posterior end of the abdomen. And we're right next to a little temporary stream, which was the clue for me to start looking <laughs> for these stoneflies because they do emerge out of uh, small streams and sometimes, depending on the species, even much larger streams. So there are different species that are characteristic of different order streams. First order streams would be uh, the smallest streams, usually in upland woods. And uh, this, no doubt, is one of the species of Allocapnia, small winter stonefly found in one of the first order streams that could even be a temporary stream. It almost looks more like, like it, it just like a ditch on the side of the path that we're walking right now. Exactly. Now we're looking at the stone, stonefly, and I guess it's, it is sort of a good name because how long would you say the one we're looking at is? Just um, to... Maybe a little bit more than a quarter of an inch, so maybe seven, seven millimeters long maybe. The reason I, I intentionally called it small 
winter stonefly. Uh -huh. Not because it's small per se, but because there's another family of stoneflies, also called winter stoneflies, that are bigger. Oh. This this particular genus, genus Alicapnea, technically is in the family Capneides, capital C-A-P-N-I-I-D-A-E. And this other family that I personally call the large winter stoneflies are in the family Taneopterigidae, big long name, <laughs> hard to pronounce, hard to spell, but it's capital T-A-E-N-I-O-P-T-Y, G-I-D-A-E, and they emerge a little bit later, usually no earlier than the end of February, and today is February 4th. <laughs> so this is the time of the year when Alicapnea starts emerging. Sometimes they'll emerge even uh, in January. But again, small winter stonefly as compared to the large winter stoneflies in the family Taneopterigidae. Yeah, and I think what I'll do is for each species that we see, and of course we have no idea how many we're gonna see today, but I'll kind of do like a timestamp in the episode notes and link to like an image so, so people can see exactly what we're talking about. Sure. And of course the nymphs of these are aquatic. I, I, I guess I sort of uh, implied that by saying they're associated with first order streams. So the nymphs are aquatic, but the adults of course are terrestrial and they crawl over the snow surface usually in proximity to the stream where the, uh, the nymph uh, developed. So again, many, many different species in the genus Alicapnea alone. I think I've collected uh, two or three species here in the past. So <laughs> this is just a one of maybe three found here. Good find. There's a couple of other bizarre kinds of winter active insects that you have to really look more carefully for, often around the bases or near the bases of trees. In particular, I'm looking for one called the snow scorpion fly. Wow. The genus Boreas, which uh, Boreas is d derived from the Greek word, which means north, boreal, north. So uh, they're, they're northern insects that are most commonly seen on the snow surface. Uh -huh. see these, these open sunlit patches uh, with um, intermittent or temporary drainage are the places to look for, for uh, the kind of species that we just saw. And of course it gets a little warmer with the sun on the surface. And the other thing I didn't, did not mention was that Alicapnea is very dark bodied and it's a common characteristic of winter active insects that they're very dark colored. So they absorb uh, whatever small amount of solar radiation is present during the winter months. So dark coloration seems to be uh, one of the adaptations for winter active insects. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. They're absorbing all that light. Yep, and the other characteristic is there's a, generally a reduction in wings. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't tell because that specimen was so small, but in Alicapnea, especially the males, the wings maybe are only half the length of the body. They're smaller than in the females whose wings are a bit longer. But even then, they're not uh, large, well-developed wings. And the snow scorpion flies, uh, for example, are wingless. Huh. And there are a few other wingless uh, winter active insects. So again, there's a tendency towards winglessness or flightlessness, uh, maybe for two reasons. Uh, to conserve uh, heat, so that heat's not radiating out more body surface. And also, um, there's no advantage to dispersing well with wings in the winter because if you get blown away from your natural <laughs> habitat or microhabitat, uh, you could be a goner. So. There seems yeah. to be evolutionary pressure towards uh, flightlessness, reduction in wings, and also dark coloration. Now, I do have a quick question. So the small winter stonefly that we just saw, mm -hmm. it's out on the snow right now. Yes. But as we kind of just talked about off mic, 
we're about to get some winter weather coming in in the next few days. What's going to happen to that stonefly? Well, if it hadn't mated and, um, of course, in the case of a female, gone back to the stream to lay its eggs, they probably would die. Sometimes the emergence is um, prolonged over a period of time, so it's sort of a scattershot approach. So if some die at some point during the emergence period, others do survive to mate and lay eggs. So it's again, it's a, uh, it's, it's a survival uh, mechanism, but thankfully the emergence is a little bit prolonged, sometimes over a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. But that stonefly, if it doesn't mate and lay eggs, if we get the really severe weather uh, in the next day or two, it just might kill it. So it's going to lay its eggs in the water? Yes. The, the, when the, the adults are crawling around on the snow surface, they're, they're basically looking for mates. Mm-hmm. And they often climb vertical surfaces, especially tree trunks, and, and those are basically their trysting places where they, where they find a member of the opposite sex. And they often mate in those kinds of situations, and then the female returns to the water uh, to lay its eggs, usually at the edge of the water. The male, um, if it's done mating, it, it probably soon dies. <laughs> so, and as far as I know, the adults feed little, if at all, so they're probably just living on uh, energy reserves carried over from the nymphal stage, feeding underwater on uh, the microflora, bacteria, fungi, and so on. Now, I've, I've heard of that with certain, like, lepidopterans, and, where and, they... And algae, I should say, also. Right, eating algae. Gra- right. Gra- grazing algae, um, bacteria, fungi off of rock surfaces and, and uh, organic material that's underwater. Now, I was saying that uh, I, I've, I've heard of this with some species of lepidopterans and, and maybe some other groups, that some adults just don't feed at all. Some species of adults don't feed. Correct. I mean, do you have a rough idea for how common that is? for you know an adult insect like that to not eat as an adult or is it is it relatively rare or is it pretty common or is it 50 <laughs> 50 yeah gonna... it's a good it's a good question and I, I honestly wouldn't know the percentage except to say that there is at least some small percentage that do not feed as adults i mean the, the classic example among the macro moths for example are the giant silk moths like the Cecropia and the Polyphemus and the Luna and so on, they don't feed as, feed at all uh, as adults. <laughs> and of course, they correspondingly have a very short lifespan as adults. They're basically just reproductive machines as adults. <laughs> and uh, so, so there's one example. Yeah. Um, the other example are, are mayflies. Um, adult mayflies don't even have functional mouth, mouth parts at all. They couldn't feed if they wanted to, and that's a whole order of insects. Wow. Uh, you know, worldwide, multiple thousands of species that don't feed at all as adults. But again, ephemeroptera literally means short-lived winged insects. <laughs> uh, the ephemeral winged insects, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they don't feed at all as adults. They couldn't if they wanted to. They don't have functional mouth parts. But uh, they, if, a may, if an adult mayfly is a couple of days old, three, four days old, that's old. Wow. They don't, okay. they, don't, they don't live much longer because, again, they're living on energy reserves carried over from the nymphal stage. Again, like in the case of stoneflies, uh, they're aquatic, oh. so the, the uh, mayfly nymphs uh, develop underwater. And <laughs> these short-lived adults uh, come out. So, again, it varies by group. But um, I don't know. There's, I'm just guessing. I would say there's just a wild guess. Maybe a third of insects or, or maybe a bit less don't feed as adults. Yeah. So it, it wow. go, it's all over the map, though. Huh. Here's another alicapnia. Do male and females look uh, nearly identical? Superficially, yes. Oh, but, the wing size you had mentioned. Yeah, the wing size is a difference. And also the uh, overall body size, the females tend to be bigger. 
and yeah, the females have more well-developed wings. Um, that, I'm guessing that's a female, but the only way I'd know for sure is to put it under a microscope or a good strong hand lens. Yeah. But there's another alicapnia. You have to you have to have a good search image because these things are not huge. Yep. Little tiny dark specks on the snow here. Wow. Springtail oh. snow. snow I just I just saw one <laughs> launch see, itself. See one jump? <laughs> it just disappeared essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these are really small. Uh, small and oh, there's a snow scorpion fly. Oh, nice! Wow. And and if you look, uh, Steve, if you look at it from this side, you can see the downward pointing beak underneath the head. Which, oh yeah. Which is the characteristic feature. So it's not even really tucked under its body. It's almost like directly pointing downward. Yep, it protrudes straight downward. So that's a winter scorpion fly in the genus Boreas. So I take it these guys do feed as adults. Or uh, is I, that... I believe they do. Okay. I think both the larvae and the adults feed on mosses, interestingly. So sort of primitive uh, plants that they feed on. Now I'll have a little trick for uh, <laughs> identifying another winter... Oh, it's moving. And these, these wow, actually just... jump, like springtails. They jump, but uh, they use their legs, not a springing organ on the back underside of the body like the springtails do. But uh, these snow scorpion flies can jump surprisingly long distances as well. And the wings are reduced to little bars or pads that have, in the case of males, like little grappling hooks coming off that apparently are involved in clasping the female during mating. Huh. Uh, so they're, they're a very interesting uh, group of insects that most people, unless they do the kind of thing we're doing, specifically going out in the winter on favorable days and looking for them, most people never see these things. Now it's worth it's worth talking about that that part of the springtail. So it almost looks like they have a tail, right? Kind of a long tail that kind of protrudes from the back of their body, but then it's completely wrapped under their body, bends back towards its head, but under its body. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's a springing organ. It's called the furcula, and it is folded backwards underneath the uh, abdomen. And there's even a structure uh, near the base of the abdomen called a retinaculum that actually clasps and holds in place the uh, furcula. And then if the ret retinaculum releases and, and that uh, springing organ goes downwards and backwards, that's what propels the insect forward. Well, it's like a trebuchet kind of? <laughs> like you just release a, a thing on one end and it just... <laughs> right, it's like... Wow. Um, it, it, trebuchet yeah. is probably the wrong wrong comparison, but... Yeah, it's. I mean, it's like releasing the a coiled spring, basically, but yeah, a different, uh, more like a lever than a spring. Yeah, that's so interesting. So we've seen three different kinds of winter active insects so far: the small winter stoneflies in the genus Alicapnia, the uh, snowflies, uh, snowflies um, in the order Columbula, and the species that I've collected here previously that I had verified by a specialist is in the genus Hypogastrura, in the family Hypogastruridae. And they are the very dark purplish black, tiny snow fleas that sometimes you'll see on the snow surface in thousands, tens oh. of thousands, just peppering the snow surface. See the stonefly crawling across the snow under that log? Uh-huh, yep, it's moving now, it's, it's moving, trucking. It's moving, moving pretty well, that's yeah. right. And then we saw the snow scorpion fly, so again, three different insects so far. The reason that we're looking more on the snow than the tree trunks is it because it's so much easier to find one on the snow exactly, than the tree trunks. Exactly, because <laughs> of the contrast of the dark stonefly against the white snow, it's definitely much easier to see them uh, on the snow surface. Uh, right. when, when we get down to Deer Lick Creek at the bottom of this trail, 
Uh, we'll actually look on some of the tree trunks and see if we can find any crawling on tree trunks down there. Because there's probably, if they're emerging there, they're probably going to be going up and down the tree trunks. Yeah. And actually, if someone is doing surveys for stoneflies, winter stoneflies, sometimes the best places to look are bridge abutments and guardrails near bridges over streams. Oh. Because they come up out of the creek and they love to crawl up the bridge abutments, the walls of the concrete superstructure, the bridge, and also the guardrails um, next to the, the bridge and the roadway. I mean, obviously you have to be careful <laughs> safety-wise, but those are good places to look uh, for winter stoneflies. But it, it's all a function of them liking to go up vertical objects. Mm -hmm. And to them, they don't care if it's a bridge abutment or a guardrail or a tree trunk. It's all the same to them. No, no, I have another question. <laughs> so the species that we're looking at now, are, are any of them around other times of the year as adults? No, the... the Winter stoneflies in the family Capnidae are found only during the coldest months. Okay. Uh, generally January through March, and you're not going to see them as far as I know um, any other time. I mean, there's always exceptions. There's a, there's a bizarre species of uh, Capnidae stonefly that's found in Lake Tahoe, and as far as I know, even as an adult, stays underwater. Hmm. And I don't know what its life cycle is, but um, perhaps it's found over a longer period of time. I, I don't honestly know, but generally the common widespread small winter stoneflies are only going to be found during the cold, coldest months from about January to March. Mm -hmm. But it, so in terms of springtails, obviously there's lots of species of springtails, you know, it's a whole order. Uh, the yes. ones that we're seeing now, we, even though they might all look the same because how tiny they are, I mean, from with the naked eye, they might look similar we won't see this species as an adult in the spring or summer well you could you could actually particularly in the fall when it seems like their populations start building up but you better be doing leaf litter extractions from leaf litter yeah because these are these are insects that are found in the mulch and the humus and the leaf litter and and it's just a coincidence or a phenomenon that this particular kind of springtail comes up on the snow surface on mild days in the winter and some people theorize that um, the reason they come up on the snow surface is that, it's, it, believe it or not, it's maybe a population regulation mechanism. That the population builds up to such enormous numbers by late fall, early winter, that uh, the excess population comes up out of the soil maybe to disperse. Oh. But again, it's just a theory no one knows for sure. As far as I know, no one has ever observed springtails mating on the surface of the snow mm -hmm. or even feeding. Don't ask me how careful you'd have to look to see a snow flea feeding because they're so tiny. But as far as I know, no one has ever observed them feeding who's, who have looked very carefully. Yeah. So again, it seems to be more of a dispersal mechanism. But no one knows for sure. Oh, and, and lastly, the, the scorpion fly. Yeah, you could find those at other times of the year as well. But again, they're, they're more commonly observed on the snow surface just because of the contrast. Yeah. Uh, again, if you were to uh, examine mosses, clumps of mosses carefully maybe in the fall you'd probably find them as well I've never done that but the average person is only going to see them um, in a more casual way by looking for them on the snow surface in the winter so three down 15 more species to go <laughs> <laughs> there's a kind of crane fly that I'm hoping we'll see today that is wingless 
and they walk very slowly like a little mechanical toy on the surface of the snow and because their legs are arched up in the air they tend to look like a spider oh. and when i first saw them when i was a graduate student in wisconsin i saw these things crawling on the surface of the snow along otter creek in sock county south central wisconsin and when i first looked at it, i said God, what's that spider doing on the snow surface? And I collected it, and I, when I looked at it in the lab under a microscope, I said, well, of course it's not a spider. It has three pairs of legs, not four. And it turned out to be this wingless crane fly in the family Tapulidae in the genus Chionia, capital C-H-I-O-N-E-A. And they're just simply called snow flies. Huh. But they, they come out on the snow surface and walk along like with this little mechanical toy-like gait and uh, look very spider-like. So that's one of the species I was hoping we might see today. And I've collected uh, two species of Kionia in western New York, and I think both of them might have occurred here. So this might have been one of the one of the 18 species. Yes, definitely one of the 18, if not two of the 18. <laughs> Again, I'd have to check my notes. But I also know I got two species of winter scorpion flies here. Oh, cool. Two different species of snow scorpion flies in the genus Boreas. Is that something that you could tell with the naked eye or with your hand lens? Or well, would you need to have it under a scope? Well, of course, with a scope you can confirm it. But superficially, you can tell the difference because one species is more brownish and the other species is more blackish. Mm. So if you look carefully in good light, you can see a color difference. But it's, it's fairly subtle. You really, to confirm, have to have them under the microscope. Because again, yeah. we're talking about things that are only three to four millimeters long. <laughs> right. So these things are not huge. Yeah, we've come on a day where there's a lot of little black flecks all over the snow. But it's, uh, <laughs> they're needles and there's little pieces of bark and <laughs> they're misleading because you're looking at everything. And yep. it's easy to miss something, I'm sure. That is true. And uh, this kind of uh, insect hunt uh, it's one that really relies heavily on developing a search image. It takes a little bit of practice to learn how to spot these things and where to look for them. Yeah, we can't, can't recommend enough buying yourself a hand lens and bringing it out hiking with you, whether it's winter you know, or any other season. But see, this kind of situation, basic tree trunks that have mosses growing on them, this would be the place to look for snow scorpion flies. And, uh, and we're on a birch right now, which is relatively light-colored bark which uh, makes it a little bit easier than some other species. Yep, this is a beautiful yellow birch. Which uh, birches, they like riparian areas. They like a uh, little wetness. Yeah, if, um, if you were to see the landscape around us, you'd see that this is uh, clearly a hemlock northern hardwoods forest with uh, obviously uh, eastern hemlock dominant. But uh, also you can see quite a number of yellow birch yeah. And uh, no doubt sugar maple. Yeah. Few, few beach here and there, I can only tell because they hold onto their leaves way too long. Yep, and the American, <laughs> American beach, right? Yeah. Especially the small beach seem to hold onto their leaves so late in the year, all mm -hmm. year. Not many of them though, just a, just a few here and there. Mm -hmm. Oh, finally I beat you to one. <laughs> Good for you, you've got the search image down. Yep. And this one is, this is the stonefly, the, the small winter stonefly, but Take a look and let me know if I'm right. Cause I do see that the wings don't go all the way down, but they come, so, I feel like they go further than the last one. You showed me that was a male. Yeah, I think it's another male. Ah, uh, okay. Will it all, will it completely cover the abdomen if yes. it's female? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of abdomen exposed there. Yep, so I guess I just should have listened more carefully. Oh, 
And there we go, a scorpion fly. You got one? Yeah, right here. And you can see the... Uh, it's a downward pointing beak. Yep. The proboscis. Uh-huh. Excellent. See, I'm getting you're, this you're, search engine. You're, you're <laughs> now, you've, you've now been deputized as a winter active insect specialist. <laughs> yep, that's exactly what that is. Man, knowing where to look is definitely half the battle. Yeah, I think that's Boreas brumalis. That's the dark one. Nivoriundus doesn't seem to be as common. Boreas nivoriundus. That's the one that's more brownish. Let's see, and there's... Excellent to find that. I mean, that is not big. If that's three millimeters, it's long. It's, it's not a big insect. Yeah. So good for you. Oh, it must have just hopped. Is that it down there? I think so, but this is a this is an easier one here too. Oh, you got another yeah, one. Yeah, they're all over the place now. I mean, as soon as you start seeing them. Yeah, see, there's one there. But see, look, look at the moss. Yeah. See, they're, they're probably associated with these mosses. Mm-hmm. Excellent, Steve. Well, that's three <laughs> uh, snow scorpion flies that we've found so far. Those ones are really cool. That's one that I, I've never, I shouldn't say that because uh, I also feel like I haven't noticed the small winter stonefly either, but the scorpion fly is a really exciting one. Consider yourself fortunate because the average person would never see these or even know they exist or know where to look for them. So good for you. If our listeners are consistent, I guarantee after this episode goes out, people are going to um, email us telling us that after the episode, they decided to go out and look at themselves and they found a bunch too. So, oh, that one's moving. That's an alcapneo, small winter stonefly, uh -huh. moving, moving pretty fast. See, again, we have this uh, vertical cut where it has a lot of um, moss exposed so this is the kind of place to look for uh, snow scorpion flies now while you're looking i, I have a question sure. may or may not leave it in the podcast if it's a stupid question <laughs> now is it possible for a like a caterpillar to emerge on like a warmer winter day you mean to come up on the snow surface yeah sure there's a there's actually um, a caterpillar that i collect quite regularly in the winter uh, sometimes on snow surface and sometimes not when there is no snow, but still in the winter. And it's the so-called winter cutworm ah. in the family Noctuidae. And uh, the adult is called the large yellow underwing, <laughs> Noctua pronuba. And uh, we keep a leopard gecko. And Larry the lizard loves it when I can find winter cutworms for him. <laughs> To supplement his diet of crickets and the superworms, <laughs> uh -huh. but there's a there's a, an outstanding example of a winter active Lepidopteran larva, a winter cutworm, Noctua pronuba, and there are others. One of the commodities that I identify insects from that are intercepted by Customs and Border Protection are insects that come off of Christmas trees. Oh, okay. That cross the Canadian border, a Canadian grown uh, from November and through December. And you would be amazed at the number of different Lepidopteran larvae that I've identified uh, from Canadian grown fir Christmas trees in the genus Abies. Probably mostly Abies balsamia, the balsam fir, and also Abies fraseri, the fraser fir, which are probably the two most common Canadian grown uh, Christmas trees, at least in the genus Abies. And uh, there's two in particular, uh, the so-called conifer zanclonatha, very common on conifers, overwintering as a larva, and also um, a geometrid caterpillar in the genus Protoboarmia, Protoboarmia porcellaria, relatively common inchworm or geometrid caterpillar that overwinters as a larva on fir trees. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and others. Uh, I, I don't know how many different species <laughs> of um, tiger moth larvae I've identified, including the um, the Virginia tanuka. 
Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, the adult, the caterpillars overwinter. I love. Like the woolly bear. Yeah, I love the Virginia Tanuka caterpillar. It, it, right? It has these um, bright red feet. Or, yeah. Or, yeah, orangey red feet. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, isn't the rest of the body uh, white? Is maybe the body black, but the hair on it is white or something? Yeah, there's some contrasting colored seedy uh, uh, on the Virginia Tanuka. And of course, I see the ones that are about middle instars. They're not fully developed mm-hmm. uh, that overwinter. But quite a number of different species of tiger moths overwinter as caterpillars. Uh, but I've also identified, I don't know, at least four or five other kinds of uh, noctuid moth uh, larvae caterpillars uh, from just from Christmas trees. So it's, there's a surprising number, again, if you're paying attention and looking in the right place. Well, I'll, I'll reveal now why I even asked the question to begin with, is that back in the day when I had a bit more free time to read books for fun, Nowadays, it's more like, you know, scientific articles, you know, but uh, there's a uh, an author named uh, Bern Heinrich. He, he, he teaches at the University of Vermont, I believe, yeah. but but he has some books like Year in the Maine Woods and um, Ravens in Winter. Just a lot of really, really great. Life Everlasting. Oh, I, I haven't read that one. The biology of Death. Yeah, is that one of the newer ones? Yeah, Maybe, yeah, yeah just... It's, I, I, yeah, he's an outstanding naturalist and writer. Well, I love his books, but I think I remember in maybe one of his books, it might have been Winter World or Year in the Maine Woods, one of these great books where he finds a caterpillar outdoors during the winter and, you know, it's still active. He brings it inside and then for some reason I thought maybe he, like, ate it. <laughs> and, uh, and he said it, it had, like, a sweetness to it. So... That's why I wasn't sure if I was remembering this right or not. <laughs> but th- this is years ago that I read the book. But A, can you probably eat these caterpillars safely? And B, would they even be there in winter? You already answered my first question. They, they could be there in winter. And uh, the second one is, uh, I, don't, I, I have no idea if he actually ate it or not. I don't know if I'm misremembering that. <laughs> well, it could well be. I would think, uh, especially if you're in a survival, survival situation, that they'd be an important source of... Uh, fat and protein and and, uh, micronutrients. Um, One of the interesting phenomena related to winter active insects that we had not talked about before is the biochemical um, preparation that insects go through to spend the winter. And apparently there's all kinds of interesting phenomena that I just know about superficially related to um, what are called cryoprotectants, things that protect against biochemicals that protect against freezing. And some insects uh, prepare, quote, prepare in quotes for the winter by converting fatty acids to glycerols. Okay, that would explain the sweetness if he did eat one, right? (laughs) And of course, glycerol, we know glycerols, for example, uh, car antifreeze um, contain glycerol compounds. And other insects can cold harden by increasing the concentration of sugars. Right. So when you said glycerol, I was thinking glucose, which is why I said the sweetness thing. But I, I recognized afterwards that uh, I got some wires crossed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. But uh, increasing the concentration of sugars and, and also voiding the gut. Mm. A, a lot of uh, adult, uh, a lot of adult and probably also larval insects that are active in the winter prepare for cold hardening by voiding uh, any nucleators, ice nucleators in their gut so that ice crystals can't form around them. So avoiding their gut is another uh, adaptation for, um, there's the alicapnia crawling up the snow. <laughs> so there's all kinds of interesting biochemical phenomena that just uh, almost scream for someone to study in greater depth. 
that related to cold hardening and cryoprotectants. And I think it's a very interesting field. Yeah, I I remember back in the day when I was doing more fisheries courses and and, uh, had to take aquatic microinvertebrate classes. I do, that was one of the biggest things that stuck out to me that I'm really glad you mentioned with the voiding of the gut, you know, that's Mm -hmm. just thinking about the... uh, the, the things that they have to do right. to, to survive the winter is amazing. Things that, you know, I, I obviously wasn't thinking about that before I learned about it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the more you, you dig into this stuff, it's, it, it's like a Russian dolls. One phenomenon just nests within the other, and all, they all come together to form a, an interesting biological picture. And the, the biochemistry is just uh, one aspect of it, but it's an important aspect that, again, probably uh, would really merit some further study. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a behavioral phenomenon in entomology referred to as hilltopping, which I think also occurs actually in, in other groups of animals. But um, some insects are actually attracted to high points in the landscape, anywhere from hummocks to uh, mountaintops. And a lot of times if you find a, a, an upturned stump along a, along a tree, that creates some microtopography where a lot of stoneflies will climb up and congregate, aggregate uh, on the, the high point, that mu- sort of micro high point in the landscape. So we're looking at an, an upturned stump here. Unfortunately, it's not right along a stream. <laughs> it, we're, we're going to look down below when we get to Deerlick Creek to see if we can find any hilltopping small winter stoneflies. So that's a prediction. We're, uh, we're predicting we might see some because they tend to be, <laughs> tend to be uh, drawn there, but uh, yeah. well, hopefully that, that comes true. <laughs> That'd be really cool. And it's always cool in the wintertime. Like we're looking by these little areas that are that are exposed right now because uh, there's like a break in the snow. But it's kind of cool. You see some uh, of these evergreen ferns that, uh, Wayne, you might know this. What, what's the scientific name for the Christmas fern or uh, th- this uh, poly- one? Polystichoides. This is a polystichoides? Yes. Mm-hmm. The way I remember it, uh, at least the common name, is that each of the fronds kind of looks a little bit like a Christmas stocking that, that you might hang up. <laughs> right, with a, with, a, with a heel and a toe. Do, do you know which fern that is? Uh, whether a common name or is this one of the evergreen wood ferns? Yeah, that, uh, that's one of the spinulose wood ferns that are evergreen. Mm-hmm. Now and this one this one looks a lot different from the Christmas fern. It's thrice cut, which means it's just each frond is divided a lot. <laughs> yeah, each um, even even the lobes on the, the sub-leaflets or the lobes are, are toothed. So yeah, it's tri- that's what makes it thrice cut. Yeah. Yeah, and of course the Christmas fern, also evergreen. So with you on the podcast, I have to ask the obligatory tick question. Are ticks something we can find in the winter? Only if you were to dig up leaf litter. They're not going to be active on the snow surface because it's too cold for them. Mm-hmm. But the deer tick can be um, amazingly resilient. I remember a number of years ago when I was doing tick identifications for the state health department, we had an unusually mild stretch in early January, and people were submitting deer ticks to me for identification because wow. they, they, were, they became active again, overwintering under the warm conditions. <laughs> I've, I've collected them uh, at temperatures that were right around freezing in the fall, early mid-November literally at freezing temperatures. It's amazing how cold hardy deer ticks are. Wow. But once they're snow cover, they, they tend to be uh, hunkered down underneath the snow in the leaf litter, just waiting for warmth to return. But this is the kind of habitat to look for the snow fly uh, along, along a little stream like this. So we want to look for a little spider-like insect. Oops, crawling <laughs> on the snow. I'm almost thinking this is going to be the easiest one to see. 
snowfly? Yeah. It, is, it, it will be if, you, if, if we're lucky to cross paths with Because I'm just imagining, based on the other flies it's related to, it's going to be relatively big, right? Or, yeah, it's, it's a little stockier than, um, oh, it's certainly bigger than the snow scorpion fly. Is, is this uh, the winter fly? It, it is a, a dipterin, right? Yeah, it's, it's in the family Tapulidae, the, the family of crane flies, mm -hmm. which is an enormous family in terms of the number of species. Now, our and the larvae, as far as I know, are associated with the mammal burrows. Oh, probably feeding on organic matter in mammal burrows, like maybe woodchuck, for example. Or so, when you say organic matter, do you mean like uh, waste? Uh, or I'm not sure. Could be. Now we're in a really yeah dangerous situation. <laughs> it's like a tangle of tree branches. Yeah, I'm gonna. Nice no, I think we should get up out of this channel. Yeah, this looks a little bit safer over here. Now, when you say the snowfly is wingless, dipterins, if I'm remembering right, they have these, they have two regular wings, right? And then they have something else that, that could have been wings, but they've been reduced to something called haltiers. Is that correct. it? That's correct. And, and Kionia has the haltiers, but it doesn't have the forewings. Wow. Or it has little teeny tiny stubs of forewings. They're, they're effectively wingless. Interesting. But the haltiers, uh, there's another alicapnia. Mm-hmm. But yep, that's the clue that it's a dipterin, even though it doesn't have developed four wings. Are the haltiers good? Uh, good assumption. I, I've done some entomology work in my day. Yeah, nice. <laughs> in uh, in Illinois, that was a big part of our job is keying out insects. We do these in insect sweeps about 50 meters uh, within these transects. We go five meters to each side of a transect and do these insect sweeps. So well, good. Well, you know basic entomology. <laughs> Very basic is that's the important well, the order, <laughs> keyword. Order diptera literally means die meaning two and wing, terra wings. Here's another one. Yep. Good. There's no doubt you've got the search image <laughs> I want more search images. I hope we find more. But you know even if we don't, this has been great so far. Just just to see the three that we've seen. Okay, so now we're crossing a little footbridge over Deerlick Creek. And see that kind of hummock? Yeah. If the alicapnia were emerging, you would see numbers. I'm, I think we might be a little bit early. I'm not seeing any of the pieces of alicapnia that are associated with this stream yet. And if they were out emerging, uh, there would be no doubt. Because yeah. you'd see quite a, quite a number of them. And it almost feels like a little bit of a shame, and, and I guess this is kind of bound to happen, but since it's a little bit lower than the stuff around it, the stream that we're kind of going down into now, it's a little bit shaded. Yes, but again, uh, if they were out, this kind of wooden post, yeah. you'd find stoneflies on that. And uh, the sides of the bridge here, again, you'd find stoneflies on the bridge. Uh -huh. yeah, and, and I feel like the bridge would even be a light enough color to make it relatively easy to see. Oh yeah, they show up good against that uh, light-colored, pressure-treated wood. Yeah. But I'm not seeing any uh, alicapnia along here. Oh, hey! <laughs> we got one here. Is it an alicapnia? Yep, alicapnia. Okay. Good, good. So, so we found something. Now that's a proof of concept that here's, there's more. Here's another one. And this is on, again, it looks like a log that kind of fell over the, uh, the stream a bit. So this is a bit of a high point. Notice how much smaller this one is. This is a different species. Oh, really? Yeah, th this is probably Elecapnia. Oh, what's the species found here in this stream? I can't remember exactly. I'd have to look it up. But this is, a, I'm quite sure, is a different species than we were seeing upslope. Yeah, and, and this one 
also looks much smaller to me. Yes. I count that, so that's we're up to four now. Four different species. Four species. Yeah. Yes. Two Elecapnia snowflea mm -hmm. in the order Columbula, and then the uh, scorpion. Snow scorpion. Snow fly. scorpion fly. Genus yeah. Boreas. Boreas. Boreas bumalis. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah, it seems this is an easier way up. Yeah, I think this other way would be more challenging. There's another alicapnia crawling on this uh, snow-covered um, tree branch. Exactly like we thought was going to happen. Here's, here, oh, here's a bunch of them actually. Oh, I got one over here. How many do you have over there? Uh, one, two, three, four. Wow. Five, no, oh, you know what? One, nine, two. Six, seven. Where, where are they again? Male, and I think a female up there. Correct, that is a female. Nice. Excellent, good for you. Wait, is this our first female? Is there, as far as I know, that's our first female. The wings actually cover the uh, abdomen. Notice how the abdomen is relatively swollen Uh huh. compared to the it, parallel sided skinny little male. In, in fact, the male almost looks like it's ever so slightly like tapered mm -hmm. near, the, near the, the very end of it. Whereas the female is sort of more bulbous at the hind end. Yep. Amazing. And again, bigger. You you spotted the size difference, so good for you. Oh, and look if I had the mic here. Probably another male over yep, there. Yeah, looks like another little skinny male. That's right. Wow. Well, we got the female. That's what we wanted. <laughs> yeah, and there's another one over there crawling up with that oh, yeah. pocket. So you see this fallen snow-covered uh, tree has quite a number on. I, I saw seven in the spot right over there. Yeah. So good. We did see we did see some of the the species. You're right. Walk upstream more into the light, <laughs> and we found them. So good suggestion, and we were rewarded. Now, Steve, you got to find a snowfly. <laughs> I know. <laughs> or the holy grail. One of the holy grail of winter active insects is a ground beetle larva in the genus Nebria that, as a beetle larva, will uh, crawl up on the snow, um, and it's bigger than anything we've seen so far. Uh, if, if we happen to stumble across one, uh, you'll be impressed that it's relatively large. It's about... Oh, damn it. What? Tell me if you see what I thought I saw. I thought those were wings out. <laughs> it's, okay, yeah. <laughs> it's a hemlock needle, but there's only two needles out. And they're right. kind of one on either side. It honestly looks like it, an yeah, insect with its wings out. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was pretty. cruel. It actually is a winged insect that you can sometimes see on these mild days. It's called a winter crane fly. Oh, okay. Not to be confused with snowfly, which is in the same family, Tephulidae. Oh, I'm sorry. The winter crane fly is in the family Trichoceridae, which is an allied family to the Tephulidae. Mm. So there are two different kinds of crane flies, two different families. But the winter crane fly is winged. It's actually winged, and on mild days you'll see the males doing this undulating flight, even above the snow surface. But it has to be just maybe a little bit warmer. For it always to be active. See, there's a, a captain up on this mound. <laughs> yep, it's like a, essentially king of the mountain right now. So I'm gonna do a little shaking here and see if anything falls off. What is this? There's a spider. Oh, nice. Wow, you got it moving again. Now eight legs, so we know it's not a snowfly. Uh huh. So I, what did I say in those notes I gave you? Four? Was it four or five different kind of spiders? Well, I can check. Oh, you have it with I you. I brought it with me. Yeah, 
Yeah, five species of spiders. Five species of spiders. In four families. Okay. So there's an additional one. Wow. So that's uh, what four different things have we seen today? Now? Well, I would five oh, two, species. Two, two, two uh, alcatnia. Right? Yeah. yeah. And that was from just shaking the branch. Uh, yeah. Looked like uh, birch. You're shaking some birch branches over these snow piles, and and it fell off. Uh, yep. Actually, it's a witch hazel. Oh, oh yeah, right there. We see the uh, the seed pods. Mm -hmm. The capsule, the seed yeah. capsule with the recurved uh, spurs. Yep. Man, I can't believe I got it wrong. <laughs> if only I would have seen the seed pot. We even did an episode on Hamamelis virginiana. <laughs> uh huh. And I use it for water witching. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> how, how can you not love a tree that doesn't flower until early October? So when you're doing this, when you're collecting insects for like a survey. Is there a particular method that you use, or is it kind of as uh, similar to how we've been doing it? Just kind of walking around and... Yeah, I've never done it in a formal way with, mm. with grids or um, transects. Uh, just sort of random search pattern. Again, I was just trying to get an initial idea of the uh, biodiversity of winter active insects. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really a formal study per se. Got it. But, I mean, one could easily uh, mark off the number of meters of stream channel and count, for instance, the number of alocapnia mm -hmm. and take a few representative specimens as vouchers to confirm identification, especially the males. Oh, here's a winter, here's a winter uh, <gasps> crane fly. Not the snow fly, but the winged winter crane fly. Oh. The trichocerid. See the wings? Uh-huh and see the long narrow legs which is uh, a feature of both the family trichoceridae and the tapulidae yeah but notice the well-developed wings so there's there's trichocera the genus trichocera so this is the one that you just kind of brought up just maybe 10 20 minutes ago. yeah yeah wow. as being the only winged right flying insect that you'll find right so that's that's the sixth thing that we've seen and that of course is on the list from uh -huh. 1996. amazing so there you go trichoceridae Winter crane fly, not snow fly, which is in the family of Tapulidae. <laughs> right, but not, the, not the winter fly that is a crane fly. This <laughs> yeah. is the winter crane fly winter. in the family Trichoceridae, not snow fly. Uh -huh. <laughs> this has wings. Mm -hmm. Kionia doesn't have wings. And, and these guys have nice long legs too. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. And the wings cover, you know, I think they extend past the end of its body. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep, they cover, they completely cover the abdomen and go, I think, a little bit beyond. Mm hmm. But obviously not a spider. It has three pairs of legs. Yep. But yeah, that's uh, that's about the only wing thing other than the alcapnia that have the flat wings that aren't really used much. <laughs> they glide at best. They mm. don't, they're not really very active flyers or crawlers. That's great. So there's a little reward. <laughs> now we got to find Kionia still. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll find everything but Kionia in the search for Kionia. Actually, something I don't think I recorded here, but could occur here, is a species of caddisfly that emerges almost year-round, believe it or not. Hmm. But when they emerge in the winter, the females only in the winter are wingless. And you'll find them perched on rocks out of, uh, out of little streams like this. And this, this phenomenon is sometimes called uh, seasonal polymorphism, with a polymorphism relating to the presence or absence of wings depending on the season. And in the winter, the fe only the females are wingless. The males are fully winged, but the females are wingless. But in the warm months, 
the females develop fully developed wings. Wow. Now so, that, that's interesting because that could be some type of extra protein that the mother will make late in the season, or it could be something totally independent of the mother and just something that it just maybe temperature dependent type of development or well, something? Well, I, I'm guessing that it's uh, t a temperature turns a gene off, turns one or more genes off that mm -hmm. result in the development of wings. That's my guess. Yeah. But what's the advantage of that? Well, it's probably a good uh, anti-dispersal device. If you don't have wings, you're not going very far. So <laughs> it sort of keeps that species remaining close during the time of the year when it would be not advantageous to disperse far. Oh. They almost look spider-like, almost like a coyonia actually. And But again, uh, aquatic and they're, I mean, the adults are terrestrial, but the larvae are aquatic. Uh -huh. You only find them in these truly aquatic situations, usually perched on rocks sticking up out of the stream. That would be something that I don't think I recorded here before, but I've seen elsewhere many times, including in Allegheny State Park. Huh. And so you wouldn't be looking for these under the rocks necessarily? They would just be on no, top? No, no, they're, of... they're exposed on the top of the rocks, wow. the sides of the rocks. And they're, they're wing, the wingless females. And you'll also find the winged males if you're lucky. So the males can fly to the females, but the females are, are they're more in place, just wherever they can crawl. Yeah, they're not going very far. Yeah. So uh, to tie it back to another episode that, that Bill and I have done, I, I have to imagine it, it would be important, but, because I know you've talked about leaf litter, but um, how important is the, uh, oof, now that was a deep spot. <laughs> but how, how important is the subnivian zone to a lot of these? Uh, it's, probably, invertebrates. it's probably very important. I mean, that's where the spring, the snow fleas are coming from, for example. Yeah. And uh, the snow flies are coming out of um, subnivian situations, including burrows, mammal burrows. I, I've read that in order for the subnivian zone to be truly effective, the, the snowpack has to be about at least a few feet deep to really get that above freezing temperature in the subnivian zone. I mean, this is from years ago, you know, reading up on this, but... Well, this ground beetle that I, I mentioned before, the genus Nebria, uh, Nebria lacustris is the species. I call it the Nivicolus ground beetle. Niv is a Latin word, I think, that means snow. Mm -hmm. As in the, the white hand cream, Nivea. Yeah, <laughs> but also it's subnivian, you know, it all it right. has those roots. Sn well, yeah, sub subnivian literally means below the snow, mm -hmm. literally. But Nivicolus means snow inhabiting. Or snow frequenting. So I've collected this so-called Naviculus ground beetle along stream margins, but it's definitely going to be uh, under the snow in sort of the sub subnivian zone, crawling around on the rocks and actively foraging. I actually photographed one of these Naviculus ground beetles along a stream channel, and it was actually a tributary again of Cataraugus Creek, but not here. And it actually was carrying a crane fly larva in its, in its mandibles. Wow. So it was actively foraging and was carrying, literally was carrying a crane fly larva. <laughs> and I actually had the crane fly larva identification confirmed. And I'm proud to say I actually had the initial identification right. Nice. So this Naviculus beetle, it's a, a predator? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Ground beetles in the family Carabidae are predators both as larvae and adults. Uh, but this particular one you'll find on the snow and I've collected it many times on the snow surface. Wow. Primarily along stream channels. But that's a, a subnivian species that will come up on the snow surface, like many of these other things. Mm -hmm. But look at the number of alicapnia right in here. I know, I'm just looking, just all around us. They're, They're just, just yeah. crawling everywhere in every direction. Yeah. 
Well, you're a world-class El Cap me if I am. <laughs> you know, once you have the surf image, and obviously this kind of situation on the snow near a stream, it's a slam dunk. What do they say? They say uh, fortune favors the prepared mind, yeah. right? <laughs> Is this it? It's Kionia and it's missing two legs. Oh my God, it's a four-legged Kionia. <laughs> and again, uh, one of the identifying characteristics of the family Tapulidae, legs deciduous. D wait, deciduous? It sheds its legs <laughs> What? Easy. They break, their legs break off. Because when, when I think of deciduous, <laughs> I think of well, our, our northern well, hardwood yeah. tree. Well, deciduous just means it, it sheds, of course it sheds leaves in the- Sure. But in, in this in this context, it's shedding legs. That's amazing. The legs I, break off real easy. So that's that's a sort of predator defense. Uh, could maybe? be. Wow. Let me get a hand. See how the legs are arched. Uh huh. Doesn't that look very spider-like? Yes, one hundred percent. I I think I might have even thought it this was one. This is a small one. Yep, that's Kionia. It's and it's a male, so that's why it's small. Wow! And this was the this was sort of the almost the holy grail. The goal, yeah. Let's see if I can. And notice how those legs are arched up in the air, very spider-like. Yeah, so it's just missing one leg. Yeah. And see the up up curved end of the abdomen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's I think part of the male clasper. And I could see, so it it looks like uh, you can see the antennae. Mm-hmm. They almost look like they have some thick sections to them. Ooh, where'd it go? It's still there. Oh yeah. And it looks like there's like a mid mid section of the antennae that looks a little thicker. Uh, yeah, the well, the, yeah, the subterminal section is is enlarged, and then it has a very narrow flagellum at the end. That's what makes the basal part look even more strikingly large. I think I might keep this guy. Mm -hmm. There's Kionia. I'm so glad we saw this. We were rewarded. <laughs> Kionia with its deciduous legs. <laughs> Do you have the time by any chance? Uh, the time is 2.48. I'm gonna say 2.45 is when we found it, rounding it off. Is that uh, alcohol that it's in? Yeah. Nice, That that's so nice to have those with you. Oh yeah, I wouldn't go anywhere without them. Mm -hmm. 2.45 on snow along, just up above, oop, oop. just up above Deerlick Creek. So for anyone who wasn't me that just sort of heard some glass against plastic clanking, uh, <laughs> Wayne has uh, these little glass uh, vials with him uh, that have some alcohol so he can preserve specimens. <laughs> how, how long have you been doing that? Uh, about 40 years. 40 years, yeah, that's what I, I figured you were about to say. <laughs> well, we got Kionia. So oh, that's so what, cool. What's that, six different things? Seven now. Seven. Yeah. Nice. So the wingless... Kionia. Mm -hmm. Snowfly, just simply called snowfly, but it is a crane fly. Mm -hmm. It just happens to be a wingless crane fly. Is that a Trichocera? Uh, I think so, because I see the wings. That's not Trichocera. No? Oh, its wings are up like a, like a fin. This is another one. This is a, this is a common midge. No way. Family Chironomidae. We got the eighth species. Yep. Yep. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's a female. The female Coronamid midge. That's amazing. So, is there any uh, interesting life history or anything about these guys? The, that... the larvae are aquatic. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's on my list, the genus Orthocladius. So probably this emerged from uh, from a nearby stream and huh. got up here. But yeah, that's that's a coronamid midge. Wow. And you're right, the wings are held booth-like over the back. Yeah, it's not, interesting. Not flat like in the Trichocera. Yeah, they're held vertically up on right. top of the body. Right. My, there's the hell tears. So another dipterin. Yep. Oh, that's sort cool. of lemony yellow almost. Oh yeah. That's cool. So there you go. Family Chironomidae. Beautiful. Just a little midge. Yep. Little female midge. Yep. How how'd you say you could tell it was female? Uh the blunt abdomen. Okay. And also the antennae. The antennae of males are pectinate, feathered, whereas mm -hmm. the females are filamentous. But it has the big blunt sort of cigar cigar shaped abdomen and and the female unbranched antennae. Nice. Yeah. You you see that with some lepidopterans too, right? The, oh, yeah. the males have the the you know the feathery antennae and the females uh, don't really have that. Yeah, and well, like in the giant silk moths, like think of the Cecropia. Mm -hmm. They both have pectinate antennae, but in the males the diameter or the the width across the plume is much wider mm. than in the females. It's sort of a narrow spindle in the female, and in the male, it's more oval. In 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 looking down on it, mm -hmm. and if you think about it functionally, males follow pheromone plumes. Okay. And those antennae are pheromone receptors. Oh, so they probably have the same chemical receptors that like we have in our nose, kind of. But for pheromones, yeah, for, the for female. pheromones, and it, it pick up very low concentrations because they follow pheromone plumes literally for miles. That's amazing. Oh, just uh, snow fleas. <laughs> More here than most of the other places we were. Just in that little area, there's a good number of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've even seen a few of them just flicked away. Yep. All right, well, I guess this would be a good place to wrap it up. Thank you for asking me to come out with you. <laughs> You're welcome. Because uh, this has been incredible. That's uh, eight species. Well, I guess the springtail I was sort of familiar with, but seven species that are new to me. Just sort of um, opens your eyes to the things that you can see during a time of the year when you wouldn't necessarily expect to see a lot of biodiversity, especially insects that are active. Right. You know, they're <clears throat> actually doing things, not just hibernating. <laughs> right. Man. Of course, one was a spider, but uh, right? that's okay. Uh, there are a number of spiders that can be active at low temperature. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's fun. I'm I'm glad that we did this. Yeah, that was very exciting. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hi everyone, Bill Michaelek here. I hope you enjoyed Steve's winter adventure with Wayne. I wish I could have been out there with him, and I'd like to give my sincere thanks to Wayne for once again sharing his time and knowledge with us and with you. If you liked what you heard, I suggest checking out the other episodes Wayne has done with us. One on the Devil's Crayfish and one on ticks. There's also a YouTube video he made with us on sampling for ticks. You can find that on our website. I'd also like to point out that you may have heard Steve fall through the ice a couple of times this episode. Well, Steve's piggies, they stayed warm and dry, thanks to boots from our sponsor, Gumleaf USA. Made from 85% natural rubber, their boots can flex without cracking many, many more times than cheaper boots. Other brands use only 25 to 50% rubber mixed with plastics and synthetics. Comfort, durability, and quality are Gumleaf's hallmarks. Check out gumleafusa.com, and when you do, Remember that patrons of the field guides will receive free shipping. Offer code is at our Patreon page. 
And if you'd like to become a monthly patron of the show, do head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Your monthly support makes this podcast possible. Everything from website maintenance to keeping it free to all, to equipment upgrades, and it even allows us to do things like, spoiler alert, plan visits to research field stations this summer. More info to come on that in the future. And we'd like to thank our new patrons over the past month, Jonathan Alsop, Anna Grant, Jake Mantela, Melissa Marie in Dusty, Arizona. We hope you're doing well out there, Melissa. Celia, Lucas O'Neill, and Kelly Smith. Thank you for becoming patrons. We also, usually at this point in the show, thank all of our patrons. Your support means the world to Steve and myself. And then we take time to thank our top patrons by name. But regular listeners of the show, you may remember that a few episodes ago, Steve and I, we reached out to all of you and said, hey, is there anyone out there that will be willing to read the list of our top patrons? We thought it would be a good, nice way to involve the listenership, but also to thank our patrons. And one of our new patrons from this month, Jake Mantela, he has agreed to do just that for us. So stick around at the end of the episode for a message from Jake and a thank you to our top patrons. You can also support the podcast through a one-time donation through PayPal, and we want to thank Brandy Blankenship for supporting us that way this month. Thank you, Brandy. And you can also support the podcast by reviewing it on whatever podcatcher you use. iTunes, Stitcher, doesn't matter to us, but by reviewing the podcast, you do get our name out in front of other people that might be interested in the show. So we do want to thank our new iTunes reviewers this month, Dustinko Man, KierKier95, and Amber DH. Thank you, folks, for taking the time to review us. Also, check out our social media feeds on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can also email us any episode suggestions, questions, whatever you got to say, send them on over to thefieldguys at gmail.com. We want to thank longtime listener Missy Fable for her email about Field Guides, the recent episode uh, we did with in, in Defense of Plants on Field Guides, and she also sent us a great picture of her much-loved copy of Newcomb's Wildflower Guide, one of Steve and my favorites. Also, folks, don't forget to visit our home on the web, thefieldguidespodcast.com, where you can check out all our episodes for free. Lastly, parents, don't forget, get those kids outside. Let them get muddy, let them get dirty, let them flip over rocks and logs. And the rest of you, don't forget to get yourself outside as well. You deserve it. All right, folks, stick around for a special message from Jake and a thank you to our top patrons. And Steve and I will see you next month. Hey, everyone. My name is Jake Mantula. And today, in honor of the Field Guide style, I'm recording out in the field. I'm recording from my favorite park out here in Lansing, Michigan, where I've selected kind of a little spot here that's got this tall standing grove of elm trees, got a bunch of maple trees, and kind of the late March, early April time, there's occasionally the dogwood, but when the summer comes out, it's full of ferns in the understory here, and it's very peaceful, it's very shady. And I know that there's a couple of crows that live up here too. And so every time that I walk through, usually I hear, hear them calling at me. It's, it's a very peaceful spot. I've been a big fan of the field guides for about a year now and been a huge source of inspiration for me about the natural world. And I'm sure that everyone else listening feels the same. So without further ado, let's get into the Patreon supporters. The field guides would like to gratefully acknowledge our top patrons. Alyssa, Eric, The Hebranks, Ken, Diane, Daniel M, Rachel, Orange Julian, Jessica, Rich K, Sean, Kelly, Rob M, we named the dog Indy, John, Bethany, Esther, Jeff, Goose Egg, Bruce, Kazis, J. Jean, Bob, Doodle Dude 82, Elizabeth, Lauren, Jane, 
Ben, Andrew, Andy, Helen, MD, Judy, Kelly, and Sarah. Thank you for making the field guides possible.